Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We appear to have survived the deluge, ladies and gentlemen. Bank Holiday Monday provided us with one of the worst 24 hours of weather seen so far this year. It is supposed to be the first week of May, so we shouldn't really have expected hail, snow and winds of up to 65 miles an hour, should we? But that's what we got. And I'm afraid uh, if you were trying to run a business, particularly a hospitality business, uh, over the course of the weekend, you weren't taking in very much money. You do have to feel sorry for all the pubs that had to close because the weather was simply too awful to serve people outside. Even those willing to huddle together under umbrellas to drink their frozen drinks and eat their cold food. And in another blow to their businesses, hospitality bosses have lost their legal challenge to the government to reopen indoor dining faster than May the 17th. As we were uh, talking about there with uh, Julia hartley they were seeking some assurance from the government that there was actually evidence that proved that opening pubs indoors was somehow dangerous, which they still have not done. Despite the fact that infection rates have hit their lowest figure for eight months, and yesterday there was only one death from COVID registered, MPs are now joining the clamour to move everything along faster. It is time to get on with it. We're talking to Dr John Lee this morning, who'll give us his take on where the lockdowns have got it completely and utterly wrong. My definition of whether a lockdown works or not is whether it works for everybody. And it certainly does not work for everybody. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we are joined by Baroness Fox, who's got plenty to say about the arrest of the weekend of a Christian preacher in Uxbridge. And she's also going to talk to us about the care home restrictions, uh, which are currently being lifted slightly. Plus, we'll take a trip to California, where the Herbert, formerly known as Prince Harry, has been hobnobbing with pop star royalty and protecting his privacy by appearing on stage to soak up the adulation from adoring fans at a charity concert. He's obviously got a new message for us, 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you, what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing, and what you're being told by your employers, by your schools, and by your kids as well. We might even ask you if money can buy you happiness after the news that Bill and Melinda Gates are getting a divorce after 27 years of marriage. Now it's just a matter of splitting up the 93 billion. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I've long been an admirer of Dr. John Lee. I've read with interest many of the pieces he's written uh, in The Spectator and elsewhere. Uh, He's done a fantastic YouTube presentation, uh, which I watched last night, uh, for Unlocked. And uh, he's with us now for the first time in the home of Common Sense. Dr. John Lee, very good morning. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Fascinating um, uh, uh, YouTube uh, video you've got out there, which was sort of put into se- several very easy to understand parts. What I'd like us to do, um, John, if we may, is kind of walk through that uh, in terms of the sorts of conclusions that you've come to, the reasons why we should now be in a position to unlock, um, and and the reasons why, because this is, I suppose, a key thing for me, the government is still continuing with this narrative that, you know, we're not safe until we're all safe. Yes, I mean, it's difficult to know where they see the exit point coming, isn't it, really? I mean, it's pretty clear, I should think, to almost everybody that they're now being far too cautious for far too long. Mm. 
Um, and, you know, the what they won't do is to engage in a proper conversation in public about why. Um, I think the reason, my, I, my take on it is that I think the reason is that they're enthralled to the precautionary principle, which is sort of better safe than sorry principle, yeah. which would be okay if it was true. But of course, if what you're doing is more harmful than what you're trying to prevent, it all becomes a bit of a nonsense. Well, it does. And also, they seem to only look at one level of harm. You know, you've talked about the excess deaths in, in, in the video, um, many of which you, you could attribute not just to COVID, uh, but to also people who are dying of loneliness, people dying because they can't get treatment for other problems. And in the end, they seem to only be looking at the harm caused by COVID rather than the harm actually caused by the lockdown. Yeah, well, this has been a problem problem throughout is that if the government's going to set itself up as the nation's doctor, they ought to follow medical principles. And one of the key, most basic medical principles is first do no harm. Mm. And the thing is, in, in order to do that, you have to do two things. First of all, you have to do a risk benefit assessment of the treatment you're giving. And secondly, you have to look at what's happening in the round. So if you focus obsessively on one thing, which is COVID, and you ignore all other possible health effects and harms of what you're doing, obviously you won't get the right answer. And they've been doing that from day one, as you said. Well, indeed. And so when you see um, Messrs Hancock, Dominic Ra, Boris Johnson and others talking about, you know, having to wait and having to see what the evidence is and check the data and all of that, they don't seem to have moved at all from what was set out back in January and, and when, when things could not have been more different. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's a good example, isn't it? The politicians doing exactly the opposite of what they're saying in public. So yes. they told us at the beginning it was going to be data, not dates. And clearly what they meant is going to be dates, not data, because <laughs> apparently apparently the data completely support the initial uh, timeline that they set and nothing can move them from that. Mm. So that's obviously incomprehensible and, and, and also another nonsense. Yes. And what's your view overall of the virus? I've got a feeling, and I have nothing uh, to back this up, which is, which is in any way medical. You're in a former NHS consultant pathologist. I mean, my take on the virus is that it sort of does what it wants. And regardless of how we react to it, um, it moves either to the north of England, to the south of England. It goes to India. It goes to Germany. It goes to Italy. You know, new variants pop up from time to time. I'm not sure we've ever really been in control of it. No, I I think this is one of the... One of the myths of, of the modern world, this idea of control, that we can control everything that we want to. And in the same way that, you know, uh, you know, we, we can't hold the tide back or King Canute couldn't hold the tide back. Mm. And he seemed to be more aware of the real world than we are somehow today. Um, <laughs> you know, there are things that we can control and there are things we can't control. We can't we couldn't control the weather on the weekend. Uh, we can just react to it and we can't control an airborne virus. I mean, these things. Uh, spread as you say they spread in their own way there's actually no evidence that social distancing or lockdown or masks really have that much effect on what this virus has done if you look at the viral infection curves around the world and the infection rates um there's no correlation whatsoever between the stringency of lockdown measures and what the virus has been doing the curves all look very similar so what we can do though is we can change how we react to the virus and obviously in reacting to the virus we can either be proportionate and sensible and live with it as best we can or we can overreact and actually cause big harms by what we're doing and unfortunately it seems to me that we've gone the latter route mm. uh, during this entire 15-month period and caused a, you know, a lot more harm and the thing is it's not just about um, deaths. I mean, the, the government has been obsessively focused on death numbers and publishing these numbers without context. But the point is, no medical decision is ever made without taking into effect quality of life. I mm. mean, medicine is not just about saving life at all costs. It's about saving life in a way that gives people a decent quality of life. Well, that's and when right. you look at what's been done to quality of life over this 15 months, and you add that into the equation, it's perfectly clear that what we've done is much, much worse than letting the virus do what it would have done with sensible proportionate measures. Yes, and I think many of us had a great deal of sympathy with, with Boris Johnson and the government uh, a year ago because nobody really knew what was going on. Uh, you use a clip from, from him of, of him saying this is the invisible um, killer, uh, the invisible disease, and people were genuinely scared that if they, if they did mingle with too many people, something bad might happen. What's been the reality, though, is that we've learned an awful lot in the past 12 months but we don't seem to be using that knowledge, knowing what we do. Because I think, again, we can say without any fear or favour, most of the deaths that were caused were in hospitals and care homes. Most of the people who died were over the age of 82. You know, we don't seem to have learned from any of this. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's that's a, a problem. I think it's a problem for our society because there's clearly a very dysfunctional relationship between science and medicine and politics. Mm. Um, you know, it's just not possible to get 
a sensible reason debate out into the public arena. The government, I mean, it is a part of the human response to an invisible threat. I mean, other examples would be the, uh, you know, the McCarthyite communist scare in the, in the America in the, 90, in the 1950s or yeah. scares about radioactivity. Somehow when there's an invisible threat that people can't sort of put their finger on, they can't see, um, the, 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 the risk of hysteria and the risk of overreaction is much greater because obviously it's difficult to know when it's there and it's difficult to know when it's gone. I mean, a key thing, as you say, is the, de the death age the average age of death from COVID is higher than the average age of death from all causes. Right. And what that means is really, mainly, it's killed elderly people with low life expectancy for various reasons. Obviously, you know, a limited life expectancy is part of the human condition. We, we have to simply accept the mm. fact that people do die. And what we're trying to do in medicine is to improve everybody's quality of life up to that point and then give people a dignified, calm you know, death as good as it can be for them and their families yeah. without pain you know, and with dignity. And the point is to, to lose sight of that and simply you know, preserve life at all costs and not count the effects on all the groups of people who weren't going to be affected by this virus is simply not medical and not scientific in my view. No. And we haven't been allowed to debate this. No. And why do you think that debate has been silenced? Because, you know, we've done our best here at Talk Radio to keep the debate going. Um, but, you know, without um, uh, people like yourself, it would be very difficult to do because most scientists, it seems, who are working in the business are frightened of saying things that they might be, um, you know, pulled up on. And I, I personally know three or four people who can't speak to me publicly, but will happily speak to me privately, uh, but prefer fear of sort of recriminations. Well, I think when the state tries to take control of a narrative to the extent that the government or governments around the world, not just our government, but governments around the world have done to this one, it becomes it does genuinely become quite an intimidating thing to, to go against. Mm. And, uh, you know, when the mainstream media, for example, I mean, you've done a great job on talk radio, really trying to keep people aware of different views. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the thing to understand is that science doesn't go forward by consensus. Science goes forward by argument and debate. And out of that argument and debate comes the right answer, or at least nearer the right answer. Um, and so for the government to essentially prevent that sort of debate being held on mainstream broadcasters, I think to me speaks volumes about the security of their case. It mm. seems to be quite obvious that if we had open debates about a lot of these points, the government's position on many things is untenable. And I mean, just to go back to a point you made just now about things that they've done well. The government, it seems to me, have done two things well during this pandemic. We did the Nightingale hospitals and built those very quickly, and we got, rolled out the vaccination programme well. And although there are concerns about vaccination, which is a different story, nevertheless, the rollout of the vaccination programme and the effect it's had has been good. But both times, the government hasn't known what to do with a good thing. Mm. So with the vaccination, this means that the pandemic has actually for some time now been over yeah. in this country. And we should be opening up immediately. We should have opened up a while ago. That's what we would do if we went on the data, not the dates. Yes. But obviously, they're actually doing the opposite. Well, this is the thing. I mean, how is it any safer to enter a pub and sit down on May the 17th than it is on May the 5th? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, it doesn't make any sense, given that the you know, the number of cases have fallen dramatically and the number of deaths has virtually disappeared. As mm. you said, one death yesterday. I mean, the fact is, with the amount of testing that we're doing, a huge amount of testing, and with the nature of this test, which is another whole thing to unpack, but with the nature of this test and the risk of false positive results, especially when the test is being done on a mass scale by untrained people, mm. um, the fact is the, the risk is that the pandemic will apparently carry on because you know, these false positives, at a time when the virus numbers are low, will greatly outnumber the numbers of the actual real real disease. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the, what, right throughout this pandemic, what we've been witnessing and what we think we've been witnessing have been two very different things. And the government has taken very tight control of what they think we've been witnessing. But I, I mean, I'm afraid it just doesn't stand up to, to no. you know, proper scrutiny. No, and I was saying to Julie Hartley-Brewer just before I took, took the uh, started the show um, that I was listening to an interview with Susan Mickey uh, or Mitchy, whichever way you want to pronounce her name, um, who is not a scientist uh, medically, who is a behavioural scientist, who was assuring uh, the person interviewing her that covid droplets hung in the air for hours inside buildings right basically saying that if you walked into a room where somebody had covid and who was speaking or shouting or singing um you were in danger of getting it now on your video uh, you say that's not the case well, I, I mean, I think the virus hangs around. I mean, you've got to remember that viruses have been around since the dawn of time, since before, you know, cells started uh, forming in, in, in the midst of, uh, of ancient yes. history. 
<laughs> so the fact is we've always lived with viruses and particularly respiratory viruses they spread in the ways that they spread and they're very good at hanging around in environments um, and they're very good at you know, getting into and binding to the cells and people they need to bind to to replicate themselves and the fact is they've done that throughout all history um, even when human beings were you know much less populous than we are now and spread much further afield so the fact is you know, viruses have been around and they know they you know, they're, they're being selected to survive. So I think they do hang around in the air. And that's the reason, <clears throat> excuse me, that is the reason why uh, actually a lot of these measures that the government introduced wouldn't really be expected to work because actually they do hang around. And when we go in a shop after somebody else, even if we're walking a meter or two behind them, we are breathing the same air. And if we're going to be susceptible to a virus, we are going to breathe it in. And if we're going to catch it, we sort of probably will. Mm. Yes, there are effects on you know, concentration. And yes, there are effects on proximity. But the real reason why we've never done this approach to any viral infection before in history is because the costs of doing so outweigh the benefits. That's the key thing. Mm. And that's the that's the obvious equation that hasn't been properly discussed in public. I mean, it's clear that doing this is much worse than actually doing our best to shield the vulnerable and treating people as well as we can do. I mean... There are situations where maybe this thing would be justified, it seems to be, but only if the virulence of the virus was so high that it was going to kill half of us like the plague or something. Mm. This is so far away from that. This kills maybe 15 people in a thousand, maybe 10 people in a thousand. And actually those people are already old and quite ill and you know, not long to live. That's, mm. that's the point. So it's not that we don't do our best for those people, but we shouldn't try and turn society on its head a reason like that it seems to me no quite i mean some very interesting things uh, that, that you said in your video i'd like to just bring up with you as well because i've always for a long time thought that immunity uh, is something that we should be talking about more which you which you address uh, there are many people who might naturally be immune to covid and you can explain that for us if you would but also uh, the fact that some of these uh, uh, non-symptomatic asymptomatic cases might actually be incorrect that people might be being tested positive and the test might be wrong and they might not actually have it rather than taking the view that they've got it, but they haven't got any symptoms. Yes. Well, I mean, it's just to deal with that point first. I mean, the asymptomatic uh, spread uh, has been one of the pillars of the government policy. The idea that you, know, you can be completely well and not know that you've got COVID and yet spread it to other people has been one of the reasons for carrying on with social distancing mm. and carrying on with lockdowns and so forth. But the fact is there's very little evidence. In fact, there's not a shred of evidence, convincing evidence, to to actually back that up. Mm. I mean, there, there, are, there are three ways in which you can be asymptomatic today uh, and yet test positive. One is the fact that you're incubating the virus and you're about to come out with the virus in a day or two's time and become ill. Right. That's one. Well, those cases are very low now. The second one is that you have a test that gives the wrong results. You get a false positive test. So you don't have the virus in you at all. But the third and by far the biggest group now of people who are apparently asymptomatic but get a positive test are people who've already got immunity to the virus. Mm. So the way our immunity to viruses works is with things called T cells which are a type of immune cells in our body that, that sort of identify virally infected cells and kill them. But the point is, they can't identify virally infected cells and turn on the immune system to knock off the virus until at least a few cells have been infected. And those few cells are infected, they make the virus, and then our T cells spot them, become activated and, and sit on them. But because the PCR test amplifies the RNA or the DNA of whichever virus it's trying to identify, you can still test positive when you've got a very, very low viral dose and those few cells have been infected. And so as far as the... So you won't know that you've got the disease. Oh, we've just lost the signal there. We'll try and we'll try and get Dr. John's signal back because I think he's just frozen there. But but some fascinating things in the in the video that Dr. John Lee talks about, not least because he talks about things that people don't talk about. He asks questions and answers those questions uh, with knowledge and with skill uh, and with medical experience. I think we've got him back now. Dr. John, I think we have you back. Hi. Hi, sorry about that. Sorry, you were in the midst of explaining about the, the, the final part of the immunity uh, triangle. Yes, the third thing, it, the, the third thing is that um, the, if you're immune, you can still test positive because of these few cells have been infected, and yet you will be asymptomatic. You won't know that you've got the disease and you will be no risk to anybody else. Mm. And so, as I say, the, the pillar of asymptomatic spread is actually got very low, as far as I've been able to find out about it, it's got very low 
proper scientific backing and good reasons why it's actually wrong, like it would be wrong for most other viral infections. So COVID, the real lesson from all this is that COVID is not a virus unlike any other that we've ever seen. It's a virus like many others that we've already seen. Mm. It's not Ebola disease. It's not the plague. It's actually a fairly run-of-the-mill, quite nasty, but fairly type of respiratory virus that we're used to seeing and dealing with. Yes, it causes a wave of new deaths because it's a new virus, but that wave is not actually out with the the range of deaths that you'd expect to see in, in, a, in a bad flu season. And the reason why it seems bigger is because we've attributed a lot of deaths on the basis of testing mm. to COVID, which probably aren't due to COVID. Well, I think that's absolutely right too, because when we when we hear people say, oh, but we've had this terrible death figure, um, yes, it has been a terrible death figure. However, uh, it still hasn't been as bad as people are making it out to be. And as you say, some of those deaths may not be properly ad- uh, administered by uh, uh, death by COVID anyway. But the other question that nobody seems to ever talk about uh, is how many people actually survived COVID? How many people who did get it, uh, even who went into hospital with it, most of them survived? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. The, the, the Most people who get nasty respiratory... I mean, the, the, the thing to understand is that with viral diseases, there are, there are two, uh, especially with respiratory viral diseases, there are, there are two ways that you can, you can die, essentially, or that people most commonly die. One is because the virus is so virulent in you, it overwhelms your lungs and you can't breathe and you die because of that. But secondly, it's because the virus damages your lungs and that gives the opportunity for other bacteria to get in and cause a chest infection, a normal type of chest infection, mm. a bacterial one, and then that kills you. Now, the point is that we can give pretty good supportive treatment for the viral damage and many bacteria we can give antibiotic treatment to. So actually modern therapy is very good at tiding people over uh, nasty viral infections. And in fact, that's one of the key differences between today and say the Spanish flu time, Mm. when a lot of people who got Spanish flu would have died by these other infections because there was nothing we could do because antibiotics didn't come along until the 19, late 1940s. So the point is we're in a very different situation today and actually supportive medical care is very good. So we can't save everybody, but we, as you say, we can save a lot. So it makes a lot of these infections actually less of a risk and less frightening than they would have been mm. even 50 years ago. Right. And, and just finally, if you were by some miracle invited into Downing Street to, to explain um, your point of view to Boris Johnson, what would you say to him today? I think, I think we should treat the people of this country like grown-ups. I think instead of trying to manipulate their behaviour by some psychological operations on television and the latest British crowd waving from India or Brazil or you know, New York or wherever it happens to be today to make people do what we think they ought to do, I think the government should treat people like grown-ups. I think we should be uh, people should be allowed to hear the full story. We should have it debated. And people should, as they normally do with their health decisions, make up their own minds about these things. And I think for many, many people, making up their own minds would be to live normally because actually the risks of not doing so are greater than the Yes, I think it's absolutely right. Brilliant to talk to you, Dr. John Lee. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll talk to you again, uh, I'm sure. Former NHS consultant in pathology, a soul, uh, one of the sole uh, voices of sanity, it seems to me, in the midst of all of the insanity that's been going on, because one person uh, was registered as having died of COVID yesterday. Uh, it was snowing in parts of the north of England, and yet pubs could not open. People with businesses could not allow people to come inside and shelter from the weather which was horrendous yesterday. And that, I have to say, must be sorted out. Surely some Tory MPs are now starting to rattle the cage of Boris Johnson and say, let's get things moving faster. You might not think two weeks is a long time to wait for businesses to be able to make some money. But we still don't even really know precisely what those businesses can do when they do open up for people inside the building on the 17th of May. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, we're going to talk to Sarah Jane Lenehan, uh, divorce lawyer at the Stowe Family Solicitors, because... uh, Uh, Guess what? Here's a quote you never thought you'd see. We no longer believe we can grow together. That's Mr. and Mrs. Bill Gates. Sarah Jane, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I mean, 27 years of marriage is quite an achievement in in the first place. There's not many people who would take a look at that and go, do you know what? I think we should just call it a day. 27 years. It was a long time. Yes, it is. But it's not actually unusual for us to find that couples that have been together for a long period of time actually end up growing apart. And when we at Stowe undertook a survey a couple of years ago, we found one of that was the biggest reasons of people wanting a divorce because they'd simply grown apart. Mm. It was 40% was was what we found right. in our studies. And obviously for Mr and Mrs Gates, you know, money's not going to be an issue. They've got 93 billion to, to figure out between them. But for mm. a lot of couples, um, it's more expensive to actually part, isn't it, once you've been together that length of time? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that 
that is one of the reasons as well we saw a kind of a fear of financial stability mm. um, upon separation, not only what happens um, post-separation, but the cost of, of divorce and potentially fighting over it yes. as well. And if, and, it, and if, say, for example, one person ends up with the, with the family home, the other person mm-hmm. can't necessarily buy a similarly priced home because yes. they might take out, say, half the money or they might sell mm-hmm. the family home and their circumstances kind of diminish, don't they? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We can see people in a, a real dire state. Um, and sometimes, you know, for example, one partner might be more generous, say you stay, you stay in the family home with the children, yeah. but they put themselves in a very vulnerable um, and financially unstable position right. um, for, for, for the benefit of the children. Sometimes yeah. we see obviously it completely the other way and them fighting over everything. Yeah. Is it also sometimes down to the fact, because they've got three children, but I think they're all grown up now, um, yeah. that the children leave the family home and suddenly um, either the mother or the father kind of looks around and goes, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. Yes, and we do see people staying together for the children. So sometimes couples will say that they think that a divorce will impact the children so severely that they'll quite often stay until a certain level. Or as you mentioned, sometimes the children keep a family so busy as a distraction almost that once they've all sort of flown the nest... Um, the real cracks can, can appear in a yes, marriage. Indeed. And I mean, in your experience, Sarah Jane, of, of the people who do kind of split up after being together a long time, is it because they've been leading separate lives anyway? Not necessarily romantically, but just, you know, work wise and all of that? We do often find there has been, you know, this this growing apart, yes, where they've they've lived their their separate lives but together. Um, and there's something normally knitting them together, whether it's the children or quite often another time we see a peak is upon retirement. So if one person is, you know, is working very heavily and all of a sudden they retire again, that can be a distraction mm. um, during, during the course of the marriage. And also they may sit around looking at each other thinking, actually, I don't really like them very much anymore. <laughs> yes, or ir- irritation yeah. can be one of the big things we see as well. You know, again, when you're busy... Um, those those little things don't matter, but when when there's there's no distraction, you know, small things can become particularly irritating mm. to people as well. And what's the trend in in your experience for 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 men? Because a lot of men complain that they always get the rough end of the stick. Is that still the case in in the courts if they go to court? No, and we try and move away from these sort of gender biases now because there are a lot of women out there that are financially successful, um, and we have cases where men have been the stay-at-home man, for example. Right. So really, it is looking at who is the you know financially better off partner, um, and we try and look at it that way rather than you know a gender bias. The court are doing the same; they're looking at what's available and financial resources of a party rather than you know men just. Um, being taken to the cleaners, right. <laughs> as, as the papers like. No, I know, but it, but it still does happen, though, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, certainly it appears that it happens. But, you know, my view is these funds have been built up jointly um, quite often during the marriage. Now, over a long period of time, one person has been financially supporting whilst the other person has been, you know, doing everything at home, allowing that person to to grow financially. And so why should that person walk away with nothing? Yeah. Um, and that that's quite often feels unfair to the person that has has done well financially because they feel like it's their money. But actually, the way that the courts see it is it's joint, it's matrimonial money, and that should be shared um, between between the couple. I mean, certainly in the case of the the, the Gateses, I dare say there's so, there's so much money that they, that won't really be an issue. But but you know, it's interesting. Um, I was watching Succession uh, last night because I'm onto the second series of that, which is about this sort of media mogul's family, and it's all about um, one of his ex wives who they want to try and rein back in to, to vote in a particular way and she's like I want this particular house because that's the that's where you suddenly see the odd problem don't you because with with these guys they've got so many properties and so much to, to, to sort of split up it can yes. still be pretty acrimonious yeah it could be but I would be surprised if they don't um settle things privately via some sort of mediation mm. um and, and whether they go to the courts and make everything very public um because I was just looking at, you know, how they got married. They'd hired all the, the local helicopters in the island where they got married just to make sure no one could fly over <laughs> um, and take pictures. There were no right. unwanted guests. So I, I, I would be surprised. If they uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they, I mean, and they are going to keep working together on the Gates Foundation. Mm. So I dare say they'll, yeah. they'll be reasonably amicable because I think it was Jeff Bezos when he got divorced. Uh, he immediately, his wife immediately became the, the richest woman in the world or something. Yes, yes. Lucky old her. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what's what's the business like these days? The divorce business is it? Um, is it? What's the trend? Is it? Is it? Is it? Going, people getting divorced more? Um, are, are, are people staying together more? What's your What's your take on that? Well, with the pandemic, we saw an initial dip, um, and then we saw things rise over the summer. It was our real peak over over last summer period. Mm. Um, but now I view things are kind of steadying out, and they're they're pretty much um, the, the same as they have been in the previous years. I think the only thing we have seen is the reasons for divorce being um, being different. Um, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of reasons, sort of lack of personal space, yeah. we saw a real impact on individuals' mental health, financial difficulties, um, which had been different from previous years where we'd seen you know, a lot of adultery, for example, yes. or um, this, this sort of growing apart. I, I think the reasons are different, but I think the divorce is still, is still high. I think people are still going through with them. Well, I'm assuming adultery became pretty difficult to do um, during the lockdown because you couldn't go anywhere. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that's why we, one of the reasons we think that that actually dipped mm. um, and because of that. Yeah, and also working from home, which some people seem to think is a great idea, um, isn't for everyone, you know. And if you're no. waking up every morning and the, the, the woman or the man that you used to see disappearing off to work every day is still there all day, it can be a bit irritating. Of course, and with the homeschooling as well, we saw that adding extra pressure on families and mm. people not having, you know... Not everyone is like, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates having all these different properties um, and space. You know, sometimes it was a one bedroom, prop- you know, one bedroom property, right. or a small studio flat. Right. And they were really um, you know, on top of one another it was making things extremely stressful and difficult. Yeah, interesting stuff. Sarah Jane Lennon, thank you very much indeed from uh, the uh, Stowe family solicitors. Uh, she's a divorce lawyer. Has seen a lot of this uh, sort of thing come and go. Very rarely would you see it, I suppose, with people this wealthy. Um, and quite a brave move, I suppose. It's 65 years of age, is Bill Gates, and he's now decided uh, to split up with his wife after 27 years of marriage. 93 billion quid they've got to divide uh, uh, between them. And they say they're going to remain friends and they're going to continue uh, to run the Gates Foundation. Quite a remarkable story. Now, lots of you very, very complimentary about Dr. John Lee. I'm surprised in a way that we haven't spoken to Dr. John Lee before this, but uh, it was fantastic to hear from him. A man that speaks a great deal of sense, a man who talks an awful lot about the kinds of things that we've been addressing here at Talk Radio. And he did say uh, that Talk Radio uh, single-handedly has been probably the only media outlet that has questioned the government's narrative on all manner of things. For example... You know, is it possible that you can catch COVID from the air? He said, yes, it is. But it doesn't actually matter whether you're walking through droplets in a supermarket or walking through droplets uh, in a pub or walking through droplets in any other indoor situation at school, for example. But if it is so easy to catch, if it is so easy to be passed from one person to another, why are more people not catching it? 
That would be the first question. And as he says, the droplets exist, whether or not you wear a mask. The droplets will still be emitted from your mouth, from uh, your nostrils, no matter what. So the wearing of a mask may well do some good. It may well not do any good. The point is, the jury, I think, is still out on it. And when we hear uh, from various um, advisers to the government saying things like, well, we could probably do away with social distancing, but perhaps not do away with the wearing of masks, a awful lot of people are going to be pretty upset with that, particularly come June the 21st. We want to hear from you, though. 0344 499 1000. Let's go uh, now to uh, Baroness Fox, uh, who I think is waiting patiently uh, for us. Claire. Hello, sorry about this. No, that's okay. Not a problem. Um, sometimes, you know, the vagaries of, uh, of, of what can only be described as the lockdown technology problem uh, can uh, come up and bite us just when we're least expecting. How, how are you, anyway? I'm fine, apart from that. Yes, well, good. Well, let's, let's move on swiftly from that, because let's talk, first of all, about the Neil O'Brien situation, because Neil O'Brien... Um, was, I think, pretty roundly criticised, I would say, towards the end of last year for being quite as outspoken as he was. Um, he gave interviews to newspapers, slagging off journalists, including Julie Hartley Brewer, for questioning the government's narrative. Um, he was described as uh, Matt Hancock's house elf by some, um, but he's obviously got what he wanted. Well, the thing that's fascinating is uh, that they've had to, they feel that they've had to appoint somebody to explain what levelling up is. Yes. A phrase that we've been listening to for well over a year, mm. and we now discover it was nothing more than jargon and a slogan, and so they've got to give somebody a top job to untangle it and make it real. Mm. The fact that it's Neil O'Brien, who, as you note, was somebody who, certainly anyone who builds a website that says he's going to list people who he considers to have broken some golden rule on how or what you should say about the lockdown, mm. doesn't exactly inspire me with confidence. But another thing that doesn't inspire me with confidence is his main jobs has been to run a think tank and to be an advisor to George Osborne and Theresa May. Mm. This is hardly a man of the people who has got his finger on the pulse of what levelling up might be. Well, exactly right. And also, this idea of COVID denial, which he more or less kind of coined, um, is a ludicrous statement and a ludicrous phrase, which was picked up by an awful lot of other people since then. Um, and it's quite offensive, actually. I think it really is. I mean, look, we know that in relation to those people who have been sceptical or questioning of some aspects of the lockdown, that there are fringe groups who will say, it's just like the flu, it doesn't exist, it's a conspiracy from, you know, Bill Gates or what have you. Mm. This is a tiny minority of people. The majority of people who've dared to ask any questions about lockdown policies have been quite reasonably trying to understand the logic often lacking from some of the government policies. And, you know, Talk Radio has been one of the stations that's actually ask some of those awkward questions mm. and that has to be important when legislation has been passed that has had detrimental impacts on the livelihoods and lives of so many people that you should just say is this necessary you know if you're told data not dates you should be allowed to ask the question well the data's changed why haven't the dates mm. changed well, quite. This is not about being in any way uh, part of a kind of anti-science brigade or lunatics conspiracy mongers. And in fact, if anything fuels conspiracy thinking, it's when MPs create lists and, you know, have a kind of centralised, you know, little black book, mm. uh, which calls people a COVID denier, should you ask a question of government policy? Exactly right. And also, I mean, the, the idea that, uh, uh, I mean, Julia Hartley Brewer had Liz Truss on this morning and she said, well, we have to be so cautious in case we go backwards and we do things too quickly. And Julia said, well, what, what, how could we go backwards? You know, the level of COVID now in this country is so small. The numbers of people getting it are continually falling. One person was registered as dying, and I know that it was a bank holiday yesterday, so for some reason they can't count as well on a bank holiday or a weekend as they do during the week. But still, we're, we're into single figures. And if that's not different from where we were in January, where as many as 1,000 people were dying uh, a day, then what, what's the point? Well, listen, let's relate it to the whole question of levelling up, which is what Neil O'Brien has been asked to look at. Mm. When Julia was talking to Liz Truss earlier, 
you know, Liz Truss is somebody who can be credited and rightly credited with having had a really dynamic impact in terms of trade agreements and really the whole notion of, you know, building back, um, you know, post-Brexit Britain, post-Covid, post-lockdown Britain with a real sense of forward movement and what we need is, you know, economic development and all the rest of it. That would be an essential requirement for any levelling up. Yet the government say, oh, it's okay to dilly-dally and drag out this lockdown, even despite the fact that um, so many people will suffer as a consequence. Mm. I mean, I don't know what they think levelling up is. I mean, I was in Bolton at the weekend, Mm. you know, as they were, the, the, the good uh, campaigners of Bolton that I was with were pointing out that roads have been closed because of cycle lanes, yeah. that, they can't, that the shopping centre is practically uh, uh, sort of empty because you can't get in and out, and that ordinary businesses are not able to properly function because of lockdown restrictions. Mm. And it might seem okay for politicians to say, oh, well, why are you complaining? We've got a roadmap. It's only a matter of weeks. But every single day that these restrictions in place holds back the idea or, you know, holds back for businesses, but not just businesses, for workers, for all of us, the sense of what we need to do, which is have a really energetic building up of, uh, you know, the productivity, new jobs, all of the things, and we're going to give and need to give people confidence, aren't yeah. we? You can't just say to everyone, "Right, back to normal, everyone." That requires real enthusiasm for a new period post-COVID. Mm. And what does the government say? What does Liz Truss say? Oh, we have to be very, very careful. Very, very yeah. cautious. Well, I'm amazed she's got any trade deals if that's her approach. <laughs> well, exactly right, because this idea that they seem to have got themselves uh, into, which is, well, we, we, we have to try and, you know, future-proof this and future-proof that. Well, I don't seem to remember any future-proofing that any government ever did before. You know, you deal with things as they come at you. You don't try and make it so safe for everybody to go out that you've outlawed, you know, people driving in cars or trains running or planes flying. But you sometimes wonder if that's what, what, what they're heading for. Because you kind of go, well, you know, it's more like levelling down all of this. Nobody's like me. I mean, look at yesterday, people had to shut the pubs because it was so horrible, the weather, that they literally couldn't entertain anybody. And that's more money down the drain for them. Exactly. But I also heard you interviewing somebody about the testing regime. The fact that these things are going to slow down productivity, not increase them. And, you know, any kind of sense that any historic sense that we all understand of a country that's going to really go forge ahead and be able to create new jobs and create new opportunities for young people, things that are absolutely necessary at the moment. What do we associate with that kind of entrepreneurial spirit? That you have to take some risk. Mm. I mean, the the last thing you want is a kind of risk-averse climate. Now, we've had, okay, we've had a pandemic. We understand that precautionary ideas have set in. But what you do now to reverse that it seems to me, is to absolutely fill people with the confidence. And a bit of what we, we want to say to people is we need a bit of courage now. Mm. We need to go out there and have a complete transformation of society because, you know, I was shocked. But why am I shocked? I don't even know why. But when the uh, National Institute of Economic and Social Research, you know, just a month ago or something, the numbers said that the, li- the numbers living in destitution has doubled in a single year yeah. from, you know, 200,000 to over 400,000. This is destitution. This isn't just... And, and then I'm thinking, God, that's terrible. And I think, well, it's no wonder. Not everybody's had furlough. Even the people on furlough have effectively had a 20% pay, uh, pay cut. Right. What it means is that people are really struggling. And if we're going to level up in any way at all, if you don't take those red wall seats seriously or blue wall or whatever you want to call them, what needs to happen is, is that we need to have a sense of dynamism. And that requires energy activity, huge schemes that are going to build infrastructure and so on. What you don't need is to be told to be careful, go slowly, don't do anything on the one hand. And the only dynamism I see coming out of government at the moment is around green issues. So there's a huge amount of dynamism from local councils introducing uh, low traffic neighbourhoods, closing off roads, stopping local uh, people from driving around and going, getting on with their lives. Huge amount of dynamism around cycle lanes. Mm. Well, there isn't any dynamism around. Is actually allowing 
ordinary economic productive activity to carry on. Mm. And with very, few, ex- with very few exceptions, um, unfortunately, most MPs don't really understand the real world, do they? Particularly the ones that are based in London, particularly the ones that are in the Cabinet, I suspect, who've never been probably to Bolton in their lives or never seen a shopping centre that's not really very easily accessible or, you know, never sat outside a pub in Skipton in Yorkshire, you know, and, and got hailed on. They don't know what real life is actually like. And they've all had plenty of money during this pandemic. They've all been paid 100% of their wages. They've all been paid their expenses. They're all living very nicely. Thank you very much indeed. And I think they could do with a bit of a short, sharp shock, to be honest. Well, I do. I, I would at least I would at least like to see, um, you know, rather than putting Neil O'Brien in place, what I'd at least like to have seen was a, a gathering of all of the the new Tory MPs, if you want, it's a Tory government, so they're bound to do it that way. The new Tory MPs from those seats that they didn't expect to win in the last election, mm. but did so on the back of Brexit, those red wool seats, you know, have a gathering of them and just get people, uh, them to organise local town hall meetings, go round the country. Of course, you're not allowed to have any meetings, are you? But this is what they should be doing. <laughs> town hall meetings in every single uh, place where they say they're going to level up and have a conversation. And you don't have to... I'm not suggesting that, you know, just because, you know, Jim from, from uh, Blackburn says we should do this, that the government does it. But they could do with talking to people listening to them what they're doing is they're going by opinion polling they've got no direct relationship with the ordinary people of this country they can't be those people you know they're part of the elite i mean look uh, you know i'm in the house of lords i'm on the radio all the time i know that i myself i can't pretend i'm living that life but what you can do is be open to those conversations but guess what they've done and this is why going back to neil o'brien those people in local areas who said why aren't we opening up earlier you know, the good people of Salford who say, for God's sake, this is too slow. What's happening to our hospitality industry? They say to them, oh, you're a COVID denier who just wants to get to the pub. Mm. I mean, they've got no idea. And by the way, just on the getting to the pub bit, mm. apart from the fact that there is nothing illegal with having a good time at the pub. No, um, yeah, anyway. Exactly. But it's also the case that if you, for example, are somebody who's been a... Uh, uh, working on the bins throughout this pandemic, right? You've had to, a lot of the frontline workers at Tesco's in care homes and all the rest of it, their life is reduced to just working and then having had no social life at all. The point about going to the pub is not just that you have a drink and a good time, of which there's nothing wrong, but it's also where you create community. Yes. It's where you actually go and talk to your mates, talk about the issues in the world and actually are able to relax from working bloody hard. And so what I find so frustrating is is that they kind of demonise and stigmatise ordinary people who want things to be normal, who want to have the lives they had. They want their freedoms, which are theirs by right. Mm. And yet they are the ones that are demonised as somehow being ignorant, you know, anti-sage, not listening to the experts. And that's why it just seems so ironic that the person put in charge of levelling up was one of the main cheerleaders for that kind of approach of dismissing any concerns at all about our freedoms and writing people off as ignorant. Yeah, and I mean, he's the least sort of sympathetic character that I can think of in Westminster, but that's enough about him. Because the other thing, of course, that's happened, Claire, is the other infringements on our freedoms uh, uh, has been the way the police have dealt with some people and some things over the course of the last year and the most recent example of that we saw at the weekend up in Uxbridge where a, a preacher um, was reading passages from the Bible as far as I know I haven't heard exactly what he said uh, he was accused of, of some kind of hate speech because he was talking about a marriage being between a man and a woman and he was arrested yeah, I mean, this was a really shocking example of what we might well be frightened about at the moment. Um, you know, he's a street preacher. We've all heard them before. Yeah. Not not to my taste, and quoting the Bible and reinterpreting it literally is certainly something that we might, you know, we might mock, and we should be free to mock it, yes. should we think it's a nonsense idea. But he was a 71-year-old man who's been a preacher for 35 years, and he was speaking to his conscience. Mm. And the part in the Bible that he read out was indeed about uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman, um, which is in the Bible indeed. And this, of course, was then interpreted by some passers-by as being homophobic and a hate crime. Now, unless you're going to ban the Bible and make it illegal in this country, 
um, actually, the, the, the Bible is full of things that now would be interpreted as hate crimes. Mm. I'm amazed somebody hasn't tried to cancel it. But the way that the police dealt with this gentleman was rather than telling the people who said, I'm offended by him, telling them, well, you know, get up. Don't get a life. Don't yeah. worry about it. Do you know what I mean? He's Don't stand and listen to it then. Yeah. He's a 71-year-old, you know, Bible thumper. Go away. Right. Know, exactly. Right. They've been there for a long time. They said, oh, there might be an incident that we have to inter- we have to investigate. And they basically effectively pulled him off his made-up pulpit mm. standing on a box or whatever and dragged him off. He was kept overnight for 21 hours as i understand it now they, it looks like they're not going to charge him but what a humiliation what a horribly yes. frightening thing and i think that if you're a an atheist or you're religious in this country you have to defend religious freedom and 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 conscience you have to allow people to say things that you find offensive but religious freedom was one of the very first in the Enlightenment tradition, that people realise that you, what freedom would mean, that you would allow people with mad religious views, wacky religious views that you didn't agree with, if that's your take, yeah. or that it's the word of God, if that's your take, but you would allow that, you would tolerate it. Religious tolerance is hugely important. Well, tolerance of all kinds. I mean, it's a bit like arresting that bloke that used to walk up and down Oxford Street with the, with the sandwich board on, saying the end is nigh. You know, I mean, the end is nigh is now Neil O'Brien's slogan, isn't it? I mean, I mean, actually, these days that's become fashionable. Yes. But on the on the on the religious thing, I mean, on the other hand, I, I was slightly anxious about the fact that that too many people, certainly on on social media, in my interactions, sort of immediately said, "Oh, the reason he's been arrested is because one of the police officers is a Muslim." Mm. This is, you know, an attack by Muslims on Christians. And you think, God, that's a horrible bit about the culture war, isn't it? Yeah. It's actually got nothing to do with it. This is a well and truly informed, not by anything to do with Islam, because, by the way, uh, those people who espouse Islam might well be done on the same hate crime mm. argument um, when it comes to things like uh, 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 gay rights and yes. so on. So I think we have to be careful about over-interpreting it. What really worries me is that the police... Um, in this in this sense, there's a kind of secular religion, which is the secular religion is thou shalt not offend. Mm. And anyone who does is treated as a heretic, as a blasphemer, and dragged away. And I think that's a very dangerous situation. The police themselves should just instinctively use their judgment. And the fact that their instinctive judgment is always to arrest and to actually say you can't say that is a real change, I think, from the way that mm. we've understood policing historically. And it might be that the police are in a difficult position because, you know, they're constantly getting told one thing uh, one weekend and another thing another weekend, you know. And now that we've done, been told by Priti Patel uh, that the uh, the hate incidents are now going to be done away with in terms of reporting them, but hate crime is still there. I mean, I haven't yet found anyone who can define it for me uh, as to where, the, where, where an incident stops and a crime begins. And clearly they are confused. And, and but what, what I think we shouldn't have, uh, as you just said, is is kind of the tail wagging the dog. It shouldn't be people who think that somebody's saying something offensive telling the police to go and arrest them. Yeah, I mean we have to have a, a major discussion about this. I was absolutely delighted that Pretty Patel did announce that she was going to get a, uh, rid of this insidious way of recording non-hate crime incidents because it meant that even if you'd not committed a crime if you wanted to get a job at some stage mm. the police had you on their database right. and you could be checked out so you as you know getting a job as a youth worker and suddenly the person looking on the reference says that you were done for a non-hate crime incident they only have to see the word hate crime and they're immediately just not going to take you on right. so this is a terrible uh, injustice and if Priti Patel is true to her word and gets rid of it, great. But the greater problem is, as you've pointed out, that hate crimes themselves are so often subjective. I mean, what is a hate crime? Mm. Who, and it effectively is an entirely subjective way. Of, if you look at the legislation, it actually says that a third party can report a hate crime. Right. It can be in the perception of anyone to say, I understood that as a hate crime, and then the police have to take it seriously. So I agree with you, OK, that the police are put in an awkward position because they're trying to, you know, as it were, carry out the, the, the law, and the law says that hate crimes are an issue and, and so on and so forth. But there was something about the, 
there was something, if you saw that video, about the zealousness with which they did it mm. and the insensitivity. And the la- I do think at all times police have to use their judgment as to how they act. And I think the inconsistency of the policing during the last year has been shocking for people. And we've, well, we're all familiar with the arguments yes. now. But, you know, some demonstrations are treated as more dangerous than others, let's say, not because of any objective danger, but because of the ideas being put forward. Mm. So a demonstration, um, uh, you know, on one issue, the police appear to be quite meek in terms of their intervention. A demonstration, particularly those who went on the anti-lockdown demonstrations, were pretty uh, roughly manhandled and so on. So I think that what we've got here is a police that people have started to distrust. Mm. I mean, I saw somebody very, uh, a very respectable conservative type person uh, who said on, 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 on social media over the weekend, I'm getting to the point where I hate the police. Yeah. And I was always somebody who trusted them absolutely. Now, I do think that that policing by consent is under extreme pressure. And hate crimes in particular are one of the issues which I think has done that. And at the same time, if you call the police for what we consider to be crimes, proper you know, crime. break-ins, yeah. proper crimes, as they say, <laughs> you, you can be treated, you know, it, it, like it's like they're too busy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's no one around. And there is, on a more serious note, genuinely this horrible outbreak, again, of an increased number of uh, young people uh, stabbing each other, particularly in London. Yeah. Really unpleasant. So, you know, you just think, why have you got three or four guys arresting Oh, women, led by a policewoman, actually, in Oxbridge, arresting a street preacher whose crime is words, whose crime is ideas. This is not, in my view, a crime. This goes far too close to hate crime. I mean, it goes far too close to the thought crime yes. that George Orwell talked about. It's very yeah. dangerous. No, I think you're absolutely right. Claire, great to talk to you again. Thank you. We're out of time, unfortunately, because there's a couple of other things we'd be going to catch up with you on, but we'll do that next time. Baroness Claire Fox there uh, of Buckley uh, talking some great common sense, as we do here at the Home of Common Sense, because this is where uh, it all starts, and this is where uh, you get the education that you can't get anywhere else. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, just when you thought it was safe not to have to listen to old uh, Haz, uh, as he's known, Prince Harry, uh, as he used to be known, the Duke of Netflix, as I now call him, um, he's decided it's a good idea to turn up at a rock concert, a charity concert, uh, with the likes of Jennifer Lopez and the Foo Fighters. He was in uh, California on his own, uh, turns up on stage looking a bit like a sort of cut-rate Ed Sheeran. Uh, Harry Goes to Hollywood is the, si- is, the, uh, is the headline in the Daily Mail. And Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, was the big name above him uh, on stage. Now... Call me old-fashioned, but that doesn't sound like somebody who wants to guard his privacy particularly well. He obviously quite enjoys the adulation that he's been getting. Uh, he got a standing ovation, would you believe, uh, when he explains to everybody that, uh, you know, we have to look outside of ourselves. Let's talk to Ingrid Seward now, editor of Majesty magazine, uh, to find out what she makes of it all. Ingrid, very good afternoon to you. Very good afternoon to you too. Well, I know it's, it's I mean, Harry does quite, he, he does quite like this adulation. Mm. We've seen it happen here as well. And he and he sort of, quite, I think he quite likes the microphone, having at one time been really scared of it. Mm. Um, but it sounded, I mean, I don't want to always be criticising Harry because the concert did raise a lot of money, apparently forty million yes. according to the Daily Mail. Yeah. But he did. It sounded he sounded a bit evangelical, didn't he? He did. And he was saying we must look beyond ourselves with empathy and compassion for those we know and those we don't. I mean, it, it just, it, it's sort of um, a bit out of worldly, isn't it? Well, it really is. It's also very Californian kind of self-help guru style stuff, which is clearly, I suppose, where he thinks the money is, because um, I think he's joined up with this organisation up in San Francisco, San Francisco to do a job which I'm not sure I can define, but sounds very sort of nebulous and Californian. And you just sort of go around talking to people and mentoring people and helping them through whatever it is that their trauma is by being able to sympathise with them, even though, um, you know, you haven't really been asked to. <laughs> Would you like to say all that again? <laughs> I mean, even that is complicated, isn't it? But he's a commissioner on disinformation. Mm. Um, I And I think that they're attempting... To, to, I'm reading this in the paper, attempting to tackle the pandemic 
faced a threat from vaccine misinformation. So this is where Harry slots in, mm. I, I assume. Yes. Um, but uh, and it, she didn't. She didn't go with him because we're told that she's giving birth in July. Um, now I'm not sure. Oh, I didn't. I didn't see it was July. I would have. I th- I thought it might have been a bit before that. Oh, it might be. Yeah, we're not really very sure, are we? It's all a bit of a mystery. Um, but it just seems to me that uh, they, they both suffer from this absolute assurity that they're right and everybody else is wrong, and that therefore, if they can spread the word about how they live and how they've learned about themselves, that everybody else can be better off as well. Yes, it's it's sort of uh, it's, it, it has this preaching element, mm. as I said, doesn't it? But I mean, the, the bottom line is that uh, they are mega stars in, in their in their particular universe, mm. and they are also getting uh, paid mega mega dollars uh, for for being these stars. And and long may it shine brightly, because I don't I think their life now is just so different from what their life was here, that I, I, I can't ever see them um, knitting the two together again. I However can't. much they may or may not want to. I'm sure they don't want to, but I, I just can't see it happening. Yeah, but I often wonder as well, Ingrid, when we talk about... And I'm, I'm with you. I don't obviously always want to slag him off. I'd, I'd like to say nice things about Harry, um, because I think deep down um, he is probably a decent guy. But I'm not so sure about uh, Mrs. Harry, to be honest. And I wonder whether this was always her plan to sort of launch herself out of the world of, of acting into the world of, of kind of, you know, I don't know what you would call it. You know, it's almost like social um, preaching of some kind. Well, I mean, she, she, she did like the sound of her, uh, of her own voice. And this girl was, you know, aged 11, as we are constantly told, wrote to some advertising people complaining about their standards, which is very unusual mm. for somebody that young. Yeah. So she's obviously had a, what I would call a sort of calling uh, to, to make the world a better place. And I, I, we understand this is what Harry found very attractive because Meghan basically is just one of many, many very pretty girls he took out. Um, but she had this extra something, uh, which obviously he, he loved. Mm. And, um, but I do, don't think it was always their plan. I really think she thought she could change the royal family. Mm. And, and make it work her way. I just don't think, although a lot of people do, and I might be quite wrong, but I think that when she married Harry, she did really want to kind of make it all work, but mm. only make it work for her and Harry, and not really worry so much about making it work for everyone else. No, and funnily enough, their sort of splitting away from the royal family has actually boosted the royal family in a way that I never thought we would see. You know, people are now talking about William and Kate in very sort of positive terms, particularly Kate, which I think is great. Uh, even Charles is now no longer seen as a bit of a kind of curiosity. He's actually seen as a guy who's having to, to cope with quite a lot of pressures, possibly becoming the next king sooner rather than later. Um, you know, so, I mean, in a way, their, their publicity machine has actually helped the royal family. Well, I think it has in this country. Yeah. Because I, I, I think... But I don't think it has... Um, globally, and I think I think it, the thing that must make the Queen quite sad is that, I mean, all her entire reign, we, we've been trying to sort of snuggle up to America. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean that in the nicest way, yes. not a horrible way. I mean, you know, you know, the Second World War, we needed America to come in, and you know, it took a long, long time to build up this relationship, and and it seems to me that a certain element of America really don't like our royal family anymore. No, that's true, but that doesn't matter to most of us here, I think, is, is, is the most important bit. What's interesting as well is that, you know, we spoke about this a while back, um, given um, before Prince Philip's funeral, um, what happened. Will he be able to come back here um, for the Diana st- statue um, unveiling? Because certain people have been saying in the papers recently that that might not happen now. Well, the statue's definitely going to be unveiled, and yeah. I, I personally think that there's absolutely no way that Harry won't be there, mm. because he needs to be there. Because, remember, you look at the, the newspapers today, the Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, I mean, he needs to keep his royal sort of attributes going, uh, and for him not to be there uh, for for the unveiling of, of, of the statue of his mother would, would 
be unthinkable because mm. he needs to be there because otherwise, you know, the people that pay him the money, the Netflixes and the and the giants of Hollywood, be said, well, we thought Harry was a royal prince and, and we love Diana. Why isn't he there? Mm. He's got to be there. Yes. In my mind. Right. I just was thinking more about the way that uh, supposedly he wasn't that happy about the way he was received when he came back for the funeral. He was quite surprised, apparently, that uh, a few people gave him the cold shoulder. Uh, I did well. I mean, I, I think he looked a little uncomfortable, but um, I don't know what he expected because you know he he had said some some fairly strongly derogatory things mm. about about his his. Well, this is what always, this is what always amuses me about the compassion that they espouse. You know, because she doesn't uh, believe in compassion when it comes to her own father, uh, and neither does he apparently. I think he does actually. I think he does. I just don't think. I just don't think Harry, Harry knew how to handle it. And also, uh, uh, we all think that that Harry dances to her tune, mm. um, which may or may not be true. But it looks like that. Yes, it certainly um, does. Now, having seen him at last um, back in this country for Prince Philip's funeral, we should talk about your. You've got a book out, uh, Prince Philip Revealed. I certainly have. Yes, it, 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 it's uh, it came out well b- before he died. And um, I just found Prince Philip a fascinating personality. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I've met him loads of times, but not recently, obviously. Yeah. Not recently, but, you know, when he was younger. And he was... Uh, I was always rather nervous of him, actually, because you didn't know what he was going no, to say. No, he was a bit of a loose cannon. what he was going to do. Right. Well, I became... I mean, I, I found out an awful lot more about him than I ever thought I, I knew. Um, uh, when he died, because there was a lot of really good... I mean, a lot of people complained about the fact that it was all a bit over-the-top, the coverage. But actually, some of the documentaries that I saw, particularly that one of him driving around Winter Great Park and just talking about what it was like to sort of be in charge of it all, I thought it was amazing. And uh, some of the things that we didn't know that he had, he had got himself involved in were, were fascinating as well. Absolutely, and he used to invent things. Mm. Um, you know, he, he and he... He also, the thing that I really found interesting, I think I have said this before, but I'll say it again, is that I think the very last interview that he ever did was with Radio 4, the Today programme, and they were talking to him, uh, you know, about the future and and what his legacy might be, and, you know, he hated that question, but he thought, you know, what worried him more than anything was overpopulation. Yes. And it sometimes gets a little, you know, a few sentences at the bottom of a newspaper now, this real worry about overpopulation and lack of food and lack of water. Mm. But he said, but, um, you know, I do feel confident that science will, in the end, solve everything. Yes. Um, I thought that was quite comforting. What he meant was obviously we'll be able to grow grow our own food and mm. grow our own grass and grow our own lettuces, you know, all under huge polytunnels. Right. I mean, which, of course, if it happens now. But I think that I found really quite comforting that, mm. that he was relaxed about it. Yes. And just a very thoughtful man and a very smart man. And I think somebody that, that has been a very important staple, clearly, for, for the Queen all these years. Absolutely. I mean, mm. I, I'm sure that she, you know, it, she she misses him very, very much, especially this time of year, because it was the Windsor Horseshoe, which was both their favourite favourite event, mm. and that would have been taking place sort of it, it, next week uh, at Home Park. So I'm sure that you know all these little poignant memories w- will be very sad for her. Absolutely. Well, Ingrid, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ingrid Seward, editor of Majesty Magazine, author of Prince Philip Revealed, a man of his century, uh, and a fascinating uh, book Is uh, uh, it is as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 